Welcome back to this episode of the Deal Machine Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, we've got somebody who's been in the game for 20 years. He made $25,000 on his first deal, and he markets, if you're looking for a very first deal, wholesaling real estate, where you don't have to have a real estate license, and you want to make $25,000, you've got to listen to this episode on how Jonathan Swanson markets and finds these deals. And if you've got any value from this podcast at all, please take a moment now to make sure that you're subscribed and also leave a review. These are the only two things that help us continue to produce content for you to help you on your path to financial freedom. And we want to get you there. Thanks so much for listening. And you're going to enjoy this episode with Jonathan Swanson. The Deal Machine REI Podcast. Everything you need to know to get started in real estate investing. All right. So Jonathan, can you tell me in 60 seconds who you are, what you do, and what you're about? I can. I'm Jonathan Swanson. I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. I've been here since 1995. Went to UNCW. Had a couple jobs out of college. Got into real estate in 2004 as a real estate agent and a flipper to become a long-term investor. Um, Been doing that ever since. I was at Coldwell Banker for about 10 years. Been at Remax for about 10 years. And I've done a lot of flips, a lot of long-term rentals. We're building a portfolio and got into short-term rentals just a few years ago. Gotcha. So, wow, you, you've been doing this for a while as an agent and an investor. So That's right. did you actually be a retail agent first and then decide you wanted to switch to investing? I literally started at the same time. My first house I bought with a partner was a flip that we were going to do. And then we, the market was so good in 2004 the last time it was like this. We were going to flip it and sell it and make a bunch of money, but instead we sold it to another investor, made, I think, $25,000 total, split it, couldn't have been thrilled. All we did to it was put a temporary power pole in the front yard. So that was my first like you mean list, the, my first deal, what, what, every the, which way. Okay, okay, okay. So you said you put a temporary power pole, is that what you said? Mm-hmm. And what was the purpose yeah. of that? So that's what we would have moved the power from the house to the temporary pole with a meter on it. So we could renovate the house, and redo all the power. It was an old house that needed rewiring and plumbing and heating and air and everything. So, okay. Almost like taking it back to new construction. Got it. So you, you ended up getting your real estate license because you thought you were going to be a retail agent, but then. Yeah, but then I, I was a- doing that to become an investor. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So you, okay. Gotcha. Cool. So that's really interesting. I know the the type of real estate investing that most listeners on our podcast are doing, it doesn't actually require a real estate license, uh, which is you know wholesale and real estate. And so I'm really curious, why were you motivated to get your license? Um, I wanted something that I knew I could make money with, as far as like a more of a consistent job. And the market was so good and. I knew enough people to feel like I could get some listings, get some buyers and do some business that way. But I wanted the freedom effect flexibility of being like an independent contractor. So I didn't want a real job and I wanted to flip houses. And that was before all the HGTV stuff and it became so cool later on. But I wanted to flip houses and and have my own schedule and make decent money and just create my own way kind of thing. Yeah. 
totally get that. I definitely like flexibility and not having a boss per se or like set hours that I have to be at work. So that what mm -hmm. you're saying there totally resonates with me. Now, did you ever have like a nine to five job before you became an agent and investor? Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> for almost five years, right before I got my license, I worked at Maxim Healthcare and we recruited nurses and nursing assistants in home health situations, nursing facilities. And that was a more involved job than real estate. It was the office opened at 7 a.m., closed at 6 p.m., Monday through Friday. There was on call, we rotated on, me and one or two other recruiters rotated on call after hours from 6 p.m. to 7 a.m. So if somebody called out, we had to replace them. If we had an emergency where, that we had to staff, we had to replace or add that to the schedule. And that was back in the day we had a pager and eventually we had a cell phone. So even on the weekends, we rotated. So I tell everybody that was 10 years of experience in five years. And after that, real estate wasn't easy, but I was used to being always on call, never put the phone down, you're never really off. So I, I worked all the time then, and I still didn't have any free time. Now I work all the time, but I can work my free time into my work time. Gotcha. So you were working from 6 p.m. to 7 a.m. on call? Yeah, but some nights nothing would happen. But sometimes at midnight you'd get that person that was supposed to be at work at 11 and the place they were going would call and say, they didn't show up, what are we going to do? So then I got to call my, my backups that I could bribe to go to work and pay them $10 an hour instead of $8 an hour and they would go. I just had to know who to call. Wow. Now, and if I didn't, if I couldn't get them to go, then I have to call wherever they were going back and say, sorry, we, we failed. Wow. We'll, we'll make up for it next time. Wow. I, I'm slightly triggered because I actually dated somebody who had a job like that where they were on call and she mm -hmm. could never commit to a date. So even if yeah. we'd schedule a date more often than not, she would actually have to go and be on call and do that thing. And so that was really, really tough to have a relationship with somebody like that. I'm just curious, like, how did that affect your life? Um, I got used to it. And it, like I said, it wasn't all the time, but it was just like, I can't tell you how many times we'd be ready to stand, we'd stand up and be ready to walk out of the office at 6.15 on a Friday and somebody would call out. So we all sit back down, call down the list again, get somebody to go and make it happen. So that's how I learned sort of the, the determination and just don't stop until you get it done. Got it. And that's what real estate is all the time. Yeah. Everybody thinks it's easy. And if it was easy, we'd all be doing it, but we're all trying to do it and it's not easy. Right. Well, fast forward now, you know, how, how has your life changed since you were working that nine to five, well, actually 6 PM to 7 AM on call, uh, and then long hours job recruiting nurses. How has your life changed now that you've been focused on real estate? Um, a lot more freedom and flexibility, more money. That was a good job too, where I made good money too, but I traded the, the money and the potential for more money and the corporate head on the chopping block, do better than you did last week, or we're going to, somebody else is going to replace you. And there's people after your job already. It went from that to, I can find my listings. I can find my buyers. I can find the deals. I can flip houses. I can do rental property. I can manage the subs instead of the nurses. 
I can find the places to get the materials. I can go boat riding every sometime along the way. Uh, we've got I'm married almost 20 years this month or in December. I mean, October of this year will be 20 years. Wow. Happy anniversary. Got, thank you. We've got three boys. Uh, they're 15, 10 and five. And being able to go to the baseball games, being a coach, um, all that stuff I wouldn't have been able to do in the corporate world. Now, I might be on the phone talking about real estate as I'm walking into the dugout at the game Tuesday night trying to get something under contract, and I'm going to see a house today at 530. Well, now the baseball dads are trying to meet at the baseball field at 5, so I'll probably drop that middle one off at the baseball field, go see the house, which isn't far away, come back and get him from the baseball field or stay at the baseball field until they're done. So working all of that stuff into the real estate is way easier than being stuck at a desk like this in a corporate job where they say you can't go until you staff the cases. And if it falls apart, you got to fix it. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, I'm sure your kids really appreciate you being able to go to the baseball games. And, uh, that's awesome that you're able to do that and commit to that, uh, because you're kind of in charge of your own, your own schedule, right? You don't have to go on call somewhere else. Talk to me about more about that first deal that you did. You said you only Um, put a pole in the front yard and you made $25,000. How is that possible? If you had just bought the property yourself? Yeah, this was in 2004 when we had printed magazines and an agent that I know called me and said, I'm getting this listing. It's going to be $50,000. It's bank owned. And it sounds like something you're looking for. Cause they already knew that I was looking for deals. Cause I just got my license. So that came from another agent to my broker in charge that came to me. So uh, we bought that deal. We walked into the bank of all places. Me and my partner did. And we said, we need $50,000 to buy this house and we're going to fix it and sell it. And they said, okay, that was easy then. Yeah. And we'll skip the rest of those details, but we bought it. Um, we were going to fully renovate it. It was an old house. Uh, it probably built in the forties. 16, 1700 square feet. And it wasn't terrible, but it needed everything. Plumbing, wiring, heating and air, shingles, windows, siding, flooring, paint, cabinets, countertops, appliances, light fixtures, ceiling fans, bathroom renovation. It needed everything. How how did you know it was a good deal? How did you know that $50,000 was the right price? Um, Because kind of like in the last couple of years, everything that went on the market at that time for that money, even if it needed repair, it was gone right away. We had to get to it before it hit the market, and we did. So we had it under contract before it got listed in that case, or as it got listed, I guess, because we couldn't have put it under contract without the listing in place. So listing gets signed at noon. We sign the offer to purchase at one. The agent sends it to the bank. Gotcha. Okay. So I was the buyer's agent on that one. Then I, we decided to list it instead of fix it. So then... I wouldn't do this now, but I didn't know better then. Another investor that I had met through the RIA group, which I had been involved with for about a year at that time, probably. That's kind of how I knew what I wanted to do too. 
Another investor came to me and said, I think I want that house. I said, do you have an agent? He said, nope. I said, I'll be your agent. I didn't know that I shouldn't be his agent as, a, as the owner, one of the owners. So we did. So I got paid the buyer's agent commission, the listing commission, and the buyer's agent commission again on that same house. <laughs> we sold it for $75,000. We only, only thing we did to it was we put a temporary power pole in the front yard in preparation for moving the power from the house, the meter house, the house, the meter on the house to the meter on the pole so that we could disconnect power to the house to make it safe to work copy, on. Copy. So we had already paid, I think, $350 or something to do that. Yeah. And we sold it, it closed, and that was the first deal. And I still ride by that house all the time, and I look at it every time. Copy. That's so great that you get to still drive by it and see how it's going today. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to kind of double tap into is that I know that you and I, we both market like wholesalers and wholesaling for those who don't know is when you're able to get a house off market under contract, but you don't have to go to the bank and ask for $50,000. What you can do instead is you can find someone like Jonathan or a house flipper that would actually buy that house from you before you've even closed on it. And so you could make the same 25,000 type of dollars. And so I wanted to talk about, uh, because most of our listeners are actually wholesaling, how do you go about marketing now to find more off-market deals? Because I know that you're not just relying on, you know, friends who have uh, pocket listings like that first deal. Um, there's a lot of ways to do it. And I've been trying to think of a good analogy. Um, I don't want to turn it into a deal machine commercial, but the driving for dollars is a great way to do it. That's how to build a list yourself that nobody else has. And I think if you're sending 50,000 postcards a month in your market, you're probably going to get those places anyway, but driving for dollars is a good way to get some of those people that are obviously should or would be motivated based on the way the house looks without having to send 50,000 postcards. It's a lot more targeted. Um, and there's all kinds, all the normal lists that everybody uses, the pre-foreclosures, the code violations, the tax uh, delinquent, long-term owners, multiple property landlords, houses that are paid for, high equity, long-term ownership. Um, I've, getting, I've gotten a lot of deals from other wholesalers too. Oh, interesting. And at, at the RIA meetings. Um, somebody said a couple years ago, I heard somebody say, pretend like the RIA meeting is a party in your honor and you better be there every time. And I used to be on the board of the RIA here and I stopped while the kids were little and now they're big enough that I can go back. So five or six months ago, I started going back and they said, why don't you get back on the board? And I said, I don't really want to, but okay. And now I'm opening the meetings again and sort of encouraging the networking and stuff. And I tell them every month, Come to the meeting, meet the people. I'm going to make everybody raise their hand if they're a wholesaler, raise your hand if you're a realtor, raise your hand if you're a landlord, raise your hand if you're a money lender. And guess how you find money lenders? You stand in front of the RIA group and say, who in here has money to loan? Raise your hand. Hold it up there. Everybody that needs money, get this person's contact information. I'm not going to make them give it to you right now in front of everybody, yeah. but get their contact information, meet with them, get to know them, make friends with them, figure out if you're compatible to do business together and you don't have to be partners, but paperwork in place to do the, 
the loans with each other. Please open up your podcast app right now and leave us a review and let us know what you thought of this episode. It means so much because the reviews help us get in front of more people. And the more people we can get in front of, the more we can help them achieve financial freedom. And we also get more energy to put more content out like this to help you. So by leaving us a review, it will give you more content to come to help you along in your journey. Thank you so much. That's what I tell people all the time who say, where do I find a buyer? Well, somebody like Jonathan, you could meet at your RIA meeting. Every city has these RIAs, right? And you can find them by going on Meetup, or you could actually probably find a Facebook group. How did you find out about your your RIA? Um, One of the things I did at the healthcare company was I set up a group home. And then one of the guys that I met, we rented a house to become the group home. The second house that we did, the landlord was on the board of the RIA group and he had done a 20 years worth of deals in Atlanta and Wilmington and he was doing wholesales and rehabs and lease options and he said he's really the one that got me into this and he said every few months when one of my lease options closed that I put in place I don't know two, one, two, three, four years ago 30 or 40 thousand dollars falls into my bank account when that tenant buys that house and that's work I did years ago and I thought wow that's a lot more than I'm making now. I have to work way too hard for this. So eventually that's how I got enrolled into real estate school. And he sort of became my mentor and was probably 20 or 30% of my business for several years when I first got started. So he, when he flipped houses, he would list them with me and I ended up helping him rehab the houses. So I would sort of be the site supervisor. I didn't do any of the work, but I just coordinated a lot of it. And I'd make sure what they needed was on the job sites and stuff, coordinate everything. He'd pay me a little extra for that. And I would list the house and sometimes get buyers from those houses. And so did you say that he, that he does, uh, he said the tenant that, that is in his property can buy the house. Mm-hmm. He was doing lease options. Okay. So that means so they're renting would... it and then they have the option to buy it at some point. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, yep. cool. So can we go back to the marketing that you do? And I'm curious when you're driving for dollars in Wilmington, are you driving yourself or have you hired somebody to go look for those rundown properties? I usually do it with my 15 year old. Awesome. What a cool thing to do with your kid. Yeah. And we haven't done it as much lately, but now he has his permit. So either he can drive and I can type, I can put them in the app or I drive and he puts them in the app and he's always holding the phone anyway. So he usually does it. Yeah. So now I'm trying to get him as we find more and more. When we finally get one that way, we just haven't done it enough to get one yet, but we will. I'll get him to help me oversee everything, make the list of materials, coordinate the people to do the work, help get it on the market, help get it sold, and then I'll pay him. I'll pay him to go with me because he needs to do something to get paid. So once we get a house flip, I'll get him a little more money. And then that will be what makes him want to do it again. He'll be coming to me saying, Hey, we need to go drive for dollars. And when he's 16 in October, I hope that will be one of his first jobs that he might be my very first driver. That's not me. Yeah. So, yeah. so you're you saying know, you haven't make... gotten one together, but you've gotten one yourself. Right. Well, maybe not specifically from driving for dollars. I've almost gotten a couple. Okay. Well, what's your, what are the ways that you, do, that you do get uh, deals so far? Is Are you doing direct mail to those lists that you mentioned? Yeah, a lot of direct mail to the list. I've designed my own postcards through Deal Machine. I've 
changed them a little bit. I've listened to what everybody says about how to word the cards. I've changed it what several times. There? Okay. What are some tips? Um, uh, somebody said, put your picture on the card. And I thought, I don't want my picture on the stuff. I don't, I don't like this. I want a picture of a house, not me. Cause I'm just not like that. So I put my picture on it. I think that did make people call more. I haven't really tracked it yet, but I have it set up so that I can track to see if it helps. Right. Um, um, somebody that recently I heard say, I think it was on one of the deal machine calls. They said, don't put clothes quickly, put clothes on your schedule because not everybody wants out yeah, today. That I definitely they, had somebody recently that wanted to close yep. for 250 K. I was like, actually, I think that's a price I could do when, do you, you know, and they, they didn't want to do the deal. They were hesitant because they thought I was going to make him close that day, that week. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some follow-up questions after that, and we don't know what we don't know, but then when we talk to other people and figure out, they learned that in that scenario now, I'll know it so that when I get in front of that person who needs to stay at their house until their kid graduates from school for three or four more weeks, and then they're ready to move, then we can satisfy more people. And that's part of the trading, the equity for the convenience that we sell to the homeowners as wholesalers that's what we do. We can make it easy for you. Just tell us what you want to do. So I buy houses at wholesale prices. I just keep them as rental property long-term and short-term or flip them and sell them and make money. But the other ways are mostly direct mail and we have different phone numbers set up for different types of cards. So the pre-foreclosure number is different from the code violation. The multiple property landlord is different. So when the phone calls come in, I know which postcard it came from. I might not know when they call, but I know where they came from. Yeah. And then the database is tied to the CRM and the, it keeps up with all that stuff. Right, right, right. I know I get it. Whole class, so, but what, what, let's, what, what's the best deal that you think that you've ever done by going off market, sending direct mail to either pre-foreclosure or one of those lists that you're sending mail to? Uh, one of them right now that was a deal machine postcard pre-foreclosure. They had moved out of the house. I also have a website that gives me a lot of credibility too. Yes, you said a got, website that's got your company name and they, yeah. they can Google you before they call you essentially. That's right. Yeah. So that guy literally said, we're in pre-foreclosure. I uh, got your card. I looked at your website and that's why I'm calling you. And I said, wow, well, tell me about the house. And he told me about it and I can't give it away just yet because it's not quite sold yet. But it was a place that mom and dad had divorced and four kids. He took two to somewhere out of state. She kept two here. They still get along. They just didn't live together anymore. So he ended up telling me, I'll take payoff for it. I just needed to go away. I said, well, how much is it? And he said, I think it was 93 or 94,000. And I knew it was worth a lot more than that. And it needed a lot of work, but it wasn't too far. You can fix anything. So I ended up talking to the ex-wife. She showed me the house. She needed a little bit more money. Their deal was whatever money we, we got them on top of the payoff she would get. And I said, that's fair enough. It's a deal. We paid them a little bit more than the payoff. She got the money. Um, 
it even had a car trailer in the yard. And how big was it? How, how big was the equity spread or the discount that you got? Um, we bought it for just under a hundred and it's right now on the market for 240. Wow. A hundred to 240. And you didn't do anything to it. No, no. We had to fully renovate that one. Gotcha. Okay. We've got over 50 in it. I'm sure. I don't know. The, I don't even know the final numbers yet. Okay. You put, right. Yeah. You put 50 in it, but you actually had 90 extra. Right. Yeah. And after commission and all that, hopefully the net income will be 65 or 70 when it's all said and done after money costs and everything. Yeah. So that was a great deal that you got off market. Tell me about like the worst deal that you ever got involved with. Not far from that same house, maybe 10 years ago, I bought two houses in the same neighborhood. Houses were almost just alike. One on a cul-de-sac, one on a regular street in the neighborhood. I thought, well, we have these at the same time. The one on the cul-de-sac is going to sell first because it's the kids can play in the street, literally, and in the backyard. And it was closer to the front of the neighborhood. We got them fixed, sold the other one. I could not get rid of that one. Had private money on both of them with different people. Couldn't get rid of it. it. Well, it was in a military market. There was, it was a nice house, but it was in the flood zone. Didn't have a garage. And was it a one bathroom? I can't remember if it was one and a half or two bathrooms. Anyway, we finally decided we can't put a garage there because it doesn't have one. We can, we got to figure out the flood zone stuff. And it wasn't even much flood insurance, but in a military market, they payment shop. So if the payment doesn't work, they just go look for another one. So the flood insurance adds money to the payment that ordinarily they wouldn't have. So finally, somebody told me about a LOMA letter, letter of map amendment, L-O-M-A, mm -hmm. where you can do a survey and an ele elevation certificate and see how far the ground is below the flood zone. Well, it turns out that that, that corner of the house that was in the flood zone was like this far in the flood zone. Just a small part of the house, right? A small and part of the house. was that it wasn't going to be as good of a rental property, right? Because you, you, yeah. know, you typically your cash flow, let's say you can rent it for a thousand bucks and your mortgage is $500 a month. The, the flood insurance might've added like a hundred dollars a month, right? So you're, yeah. you're going to make a hundred less dollars per month, or it, it may not be a good rental property with that extra expense. That's right. Or even as an owner occupant in the military, that's an extra hundred bucks that they needed. Yep. So uh, the, the lady that was telling me about the Loma letter said, get a landscaper to bring some dirt over there, grade it out, dump it up next to the house, grade it out. The yard won't look any different, but it'll be out of the flood zone. Then get the surveyor to come back, do a new elevation certificate. We'll submit that to FEMA. They'll redraw the map, getting that house out of the flood zone. And I finally sold that house. What? You, how fast did that, that happen? That's insane that you got that out of the flood zone. Yeah. But we still lost, I don't know, ten or $11,000. And that was 10 years ago. And that's one of the only ones I've ever lost money on. And my private money guy on that one said, just get me my money back. I'm done. Okay. So I did. And so he didn't lose money, but I did. Gotcha. So to, to avoid that mistake of, of actually, you know, the losing 10 $11,000 that, that came from the extra time where you had to hold it and then fix that problem. Right. 
Yeah. Longer, and we held it, I don't know, six months or something. Yeah. So like if, if you're actually flipping the house, you have an expense. The longer you hold it, it's not making money while you're holding it. Plus, if you're borrowing money, you have to pay the interest on the money that you're borrowing, right? So that's mm -hmm. that's actually why you, you lost the money there. And you had the extra expense of doing the dirt as well, right? Like reevaluating yeah. that. So for those of you guys who are listening, if you're wholesaling, you don't necessarily have to worry about that, right? You just have to find the deal. You pass it off to someone else. That's one of the beautiful things about yeah. wholesaling. You can still make that profit um, by getting a discounted property, but you don't have to worry about things like a flood zone. Yeah. So tell me about, um, let's double tap into, you said that you go to the baseball practice with your son. Are you the coach or are you just a parent? Usually I'm the coach. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of times I'm the assistant because I don't have quite as much stuff to keep up with. And it's a lot easier to be the assistant. But I've been the coach, and I always tell them if they need somebody, I'll do it. But and always, almost always, they need somebody. But this time, one of my a guy that I went to UNCW with years ago is the coach. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we, we've known each other forever, and it's his first time head coaching. So he's done all the hard stuff, and I've just shown up for practice and helped and We've had a great time, and we always drag two or three other parents into it. So we've got five or about four or five dads that are out there all the time. That's they're going to like an informal practice today at five on one of the school baseball fields that's close to where some of them live, wow. and they'll shoot out a text message to everybody and say, "We're going to do sandlot ball at five. Who's in?" So we're won six games in a row, and tomorrow night is the final championship, and we're going to win it. Wow, that's amazing! I like how you know you're just going to win it. Yeah. These boys are balling. That's so much fun. So what else, what other hobbies do you have, you know, outside of work? Like what, what kind of stuff is important to you? Um, we live near, near the beach in Wilmington. So we go boat riding a lot and I don't really do any fishing because the family wouldn't like that. So we hang out on the boat and they go tubing and go on the little beaches in the water and stuff. And also do track days. Um, we're about three and a half hours from Virginia International Raceway. So me and a bunch of my buddies got into that, and some of those guys are my private lenders. Two of them are uh, private lender guys. One of them is a good friend of mine, and we've done real estate business together, um, and we just had a good time doing that kind of stuff too. Oh, that's amazing! Now I've got to I've got to talk about the driving because I also just did a track day, track weekend, and I love it so much. How how did you actually get into that? Well, that's another baseball story. Um, my wife knows everybody. So she does a small group at home on Thursday mornings through church. And uh, one of the moms that she had gotten to know, um, her, the mom's husband had a Miata. <clears throat> and I, I had met him, but I didn't really know him. So I saw him at the T-ball game when our, my oldest, who's 15 now, was playing five-year-old T-ball. I saw him on the bleachers and I said, hey, you still got the convertible? And he said, yeah. And he pulled out his phone and she said, here's a picture of it. I said, well, that's an S2000. That's not a Miata. He said, oh, I sold the Miata. I said, and that's at a racetrack. That's not just in your driveway. How do you do that? He said, you buy a car and go. I said, well, I want to go. He said, well, buy a car. I said, okay, tell me about the S2000. Is that a good one? He said, yeah. So I immediately started looking at S2000s. And a couple months later, I had a red one. 
And it was so much fun. We started going, I started going with him and then we drug a couple other buddies into it. And then he sold the S2000, bought a Corvette race car. I sold my S2000 after that and bought a BMW M3. Then um, he sold that race car because it was way too much trouble. What we learned is if you have a race car, you need a pit crew and we didn't have a pit crew. He learned how to do a lot of stuff though. He would wreck it and fix it again. Oh no. If something would break, he would fix it. He'd order parts on eBay, he'd take it apart in his garage and put it all back together, which what? is a little scary because you go out there and go on 150 miles an hour, it better not break again. Um, What's your favorite so, car that you've ever owned in terms of on the track? After the after my BMW, I had three different Camaro SS one LEs, which is the one LE is kind of like the track package. So it's got a little bit better suspension, a little bit more tuned for the track, and it's fun and fast and not terribly expensive best bang for the buck and i just sold the third one and i'm gonna find a fourth one here shortly gotcha well because we're right in the middle of track season i can't believe i sold it but yeah I did. <laughs> probably too good of a deal to pass up but uh, i know yeah. you said that you you like to keep it under warranty right so it was almost three years old and, and you wanted to get a new yeah. one so it was still under warranty and i think that's really that's smart right. so track insurance if we wreck it warranty if we break it and we it's it's not cheap still but at least it's predictable. Yeah. I love that. how much we're going to spend. Look at you now from going on this insane job, recruiting nurses and not having a life to actually building yourself a rental portfolio of 36 now and uh, like going that. to baseball games and tracking your car. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Jonathan, is there anything else that you'd want to leave as advice for somebody who's listening to this and just trying to get into real estate investing for the first time? Um, Man, what you say, we got about three more hours. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think if you, you got to decide to do it. And if you decide what you want to do, do it. You're not going to be successful in anything if you just analyze it to death. All the time, analysis paralysis. We talk about that all the time and everybody knows what it is. But figure out something you want to do and just go do it. You don't have to have an LLC to buy a house. You don't have to have private money lined up. You don't have to have a real estate agent. You probably do need an attorney, at least access to one. But just figure out something that you think you want to do and go do it. If you don't like it when you do it, don't do it again. If you love love it and it made you a bunch of money, go do it again. Yeah, That's the, the, the most comprehensive advice I would say to anybody. You're not going to make any money if you don't do anything. Love it. And here. 19 years later, here I am, and I'm You're still, still I mean, I'm doing it. I'm not, I don't have a TV show and millions of dollars laying around and a thousand, 20, 30,000 doors like some people do, but it's not that hard. Right. If I can do it, anybody can do it. Yeah. Well, you've made a great living off of, you know, you're doing 36, you have 36 rentals, right? And it just goes to show you, you don't have to have 500 doors that you own a fraction of, you know, you can actually... I, I prefer to kind of do like lower amounts uh, that I own a bigger portion of. Yeah. And, and, and there's a whole risk reward tolerance thing. Some people want 10% of 10 deals. Some people want all of one deal. Some people want all of one deal and they do all the work themselves. I kind of like have everything going on and my job is just delegating and managing and getting materials there, making sure somebody's there to do the work. Right. And, getting into the deal, getting through it and getting out of it. And I'm just chasing all over the place all the time, every day. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. Uh, just from seeing how your, your life's improved so much to the tips on putting your picture on the postcard, I know that people will get advice or get a really, really um, good exposure to what real estate can do for them by this episode. And I appreciate you coming on today. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Deal Machine Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please leave us a review and follow along wherever you're listening to your podcast.